0: You can contact Casey at casey.burns at primelending.com, reach him by phone at 919-710-1864. You can also check out all his reviews at www.clotheswithkc.com. Thanks, y'all.
1: Hey, guys. Welcome back to the HLE Podcast. I'm your host, Derek, and with me is John, and we've got a uh, special guest for uh, this episode. It's Butch Whiting owner founder of Cryptech outdoor group so super stoked to have him on how you doing butch
2: i'm doing good thanks for having me looking forward to it
1: uh we're really excited to have you on man uh i've actually been wearing your guys's camo for like 10 years now i love your stuff so it was a huge um honor to have you actually accept our uh, invitation to come on
2: well i appreciate the accolades i actually noticed that in your picture and i was like This dude's writing for the brand. I didn't know it was 10 years, but.
1: Oh yeah, dude. I I remember when it was like uh, exclusively at Cabela's. It was the only place you could buy it. So when I visited my cousin in Michigan, we would always go to Cabela's and I'd be like, all right, what do I need now? And I just kind of pieced it together from there.
2: Yeah, that was early on. And that's the truth. Our first big break um, was our deal with Cabela's and we did have an exclusive there. And, uh, probably the better part of three and a half years, that was the only place you could buy cryptic and we didn't make hardly any money. They made a shit ton of money, but, uh, they got to use our brand and the whole battlefield, the backcountry, and the tactical hunting crossover was what they were after. So, um, yeah, that's when hobby phase started for sure. And then, uh, it, you know, baptism by fire, um, through that opportunity initially.
0: Now, did, those, did that Cabela's deal, was that a local deal, uh, kind of targeted towards the Western hunting crowd, or was that nationally rolled no, out?
2: It was a national deal, and I had written a, a business model, uh, a, actually a prospectus. It was about 25 pages long, and somehow one of the executives at Cabela's got a hold of that, and they became super enamored with um, one sentence that was in that in that uh, business model, which was to spiral features and functions out of special operations apparel into the civilian hunting market. And that one sentence got us the deal. So right. um, they tried a bunch of stuff in the past, you know, the, the hunting tactical crossover, but it hadn't worked out for them. Um, and so we just had a ton of authenticity and, and they reached out to us and it was super cool. I can still remember like getting this, you know, phone book size catalog that they used to send out and we were on three pages and um so yeah i mean at the end of the day you know that's what really launched uh, us into uh, a super hard hobby phase at the time claycorn was still active duty my my business partner and i just separated and and neither of us had been in you know um retail or in apparel or in anything we just had a bunch of ideas and so yeah that's how that how that got going It really sucked though, because the time I was in Alaska, I'd separated and was living up in Alaska and there wasn't a Cabela's in Alaska at all. (laughs) And so. (laughs) Did Cabela's already
0: pick you up by then?
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's how this thing got going. They have one now it's in Anchorage, but at the time there wasn't one. And so I was running around like garage selling cryptic gear out of the back of my truck. And, and, um, you know in my garage at my house and so on and so forth it was super awkward and sportsman's warehouse was watching that the whole time and there was actually i think four or five sportsman's warehouses in alaska and they kept on going why why aren't you opening this up you know and um we finally got to the point to where we made that move and it wasn't as awkward to be in a place that you couldn't uh, you couldn't sell it so yeah it was interesting
0: so your, your business partner is Josh Clayhorn, right? And you serve together. Um, yeah. What, you know, were you guys in together? So Renegade, Renegade Troop
2: 43ACR. Um, I was, uh, I commanded Renegade Troop 43ACR under HR McMaster. And Clayhorn was one of my uh, super junior warrant officers. Oh, okay. I had, I, had, I think, three W1s. He had an extensive background in Navy Special Warfare and then had dropped his packet to become a warrant officer and then um, got selected for age 64s. And at the time when I knew I was getting ready to go take command of this unit, they were on the tib fit and I knew when they were going to deploy and it was a pretty significant opportunity. I started to really build out the team. I had the luxury of being the aide de camp for the commanding general of the Army Aviation Warfighting Center, so I had like all this communications back and forth with HRC all the time. And I basically just said, "Hey, I I need the top, you know, guys in this rank and this rank." And I went and cherry picked Claycorn off a of OML list from Rucker and had never met him, and and I hadn't met any of the other guys either, actually, but man, I stacked the cards. We had a, we had a badass team and, and, um, yeah, so I hit it off with him super early on. And then I only had eight aircraft when we deployed and we still had to cover a 24 hour rotation. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I had guys spread out on the battle rhythm all day long. And I ended up, um, teaming myself with, uh, Claycorn and, uh, his backseater, um, uh, Zuber. And, uh, basically we flew 95% of our missions. Um, we're flying, uh, longbows, H64 longbows. Right. And, um, so anyway, when we weren't flying missions and I wasn't doing admin stuff, you know, we were just always talking about hunting, watching hunting DVDs and, you know, um, that's actually in, Talifar, Iraq is where I was introduced to Africa and hunting in Africa because Claycorn was just absolutely possessed by Africa. And really? so I was watching like, you know, Eastman's mule deer hunts and elk hunts. And, you know, that was my box of DVDs. And then, and Will Primo's The Truth About Hunting and, and Claycorn had all this crazy Africa stuff that he was popping in. And anyway, um, we hit it off. And so, you know, it was just always this idea of like, how cool would it be to be in the outdoor industry? And and uh, fast forward out of that, you know, wargaming and daydreaming kind of
0: turned into a real deal. So, no yeah, shit. So, when, when did it go from just a uh, how cool would it be idea to let's put some pen on paper and start mapping this thing out? Well, still active duty started to like concept stuff
2: and was looking at all kinds of different, um, you know, other things um one of the things i was looking at super hard was in the archery community uh-huh. i'd done i done my senior design project for high country archery um i got my degree from gonzaga university and i was actually commissioned uh through the rotc program at gonzaga but i designed them two new bows and one of those bows became bow of the year in 2000 it was called the carbon forerunner so i was i was still plugged in to that community super hard i was exploring ideas and concepts there we were looking at guides and outfitting businesses you know big game hunts but what really solidified it was just this idea of like all those improvements that had been made since the war on terror started in 9 11 from weapon systems and radios and you know just everything included apparel and a lot of that apparel those improvements you know we were looking at going dude that'd be really badass if we had that in the hunting world Right. And so, after we teed up that idea and put that prospectus together, the big first big break we had was with Cabela's and them reaching out and saying they absolutely love this tactical hunting crossover. Um, the whole battlefield, the backcountry, which is our slogan, it really resonated with them. And so, we ended in entered into the exclusive with Cabela's and then you know, we're still in super like Genesis hobby phase, right. And just kind of figuring stuff out and trying to make the most sense out of it to see if it was a viable deal. Um, and it was really a part-time deal too. I mean, I went from like an hour an evening to a couple hours an evening to pretty soon I'm pulling, you know, all nighters to pretty soon. I'm like, I got to do, I got to pick one or the other thing here. So, yeah, I mean, that was the first big break. We kind of launched this in the hobby phase. and okay. then, uh, Yeah, so that's that's how it started.
0: It now, were night you night. still in the Army when you were building this in late nights, or had you transitioned it, uh, at that point?
2: I just transitioned. Blackhorn um, was still in. I transitioned out. I, I was a silent partner in a business in Alaska with one of my childhood best friends, and I had invested some money into some equipment basically to pay for my trips to Alaska and fishing and hunting up there. And, um, while this was, you know, I guess percolating and going on, he called me up and I, at the time I was at Fort Leavenworth at the combined arms doctrine directorate. And, um, I ended up at Leavenworth because I had gotten selected below the zone to major right. and, I, and I had a slot uh, ACRC slot and gallon filled in Boise, Idaho. And it was a, kind of a big deal. I was deployed when we found out and HR McMaster called me up to the talk. And, you know, I called my wife on the sat phone. We had a cigar. It was cool. And then like a week later, I got a phone call from human resources command that said, Hey, um, sorry that we can't send you to Boise anymore. Um, which, by the way, was important because that's where my family's from and my wife's from. She already had a home picked out. I mean, this was right, like really right. devastating. And they that's said, about "Go you. for you." <laughs> <laughs> I know, dude. And I was like, "Why? Why can't I go?" I mean, I'm not going to be promoted for like a year and a half. And they're like, "No, once you put Bowlegs P behind your name, you know, you're treated as the, that next rank." And so, anyway, they said, "Go to the human resources command site and pick out any assignment you want on there." And this was like, how often can you get to do this? Right. So I went on there and there was some super freaking cool assignments. I mean, like some, some super neat stuff. I remember Naples, Italy was on there, Madrid, Spain. Um, there was some, some British assignments, joint tickets. And anyway, I, I contacted my wife again, this is back when like you'd send them one email a week, you know, like connectivity was su- sucked. You'd write your email on a, on a three by five floppy disk and then go to the computer and stick it in and cut and paste.
0: Um,
2: <laughs> and, um, she's like, listen, I, I, I want to be home for Christmas. I want to be home for birthdays. I don't want to be overseas. Why don't you ask them if, um, you can go to, uh, Leavenworth and, cause you're going to have to go to the command of general staff college anyway. Right. So I wrote HRC this letter and they made a job for me at the combined arms doctrine directorate. And I became their aviation SME subject matter expert. And, um, yeah, it was all super copacetic. And I was like, there was super great. I mean, it was a nine to five job. I was working out from like 11 to one running every morning from like, you know, normal PT, but also going to the gym, which was across the road and and it was super kosher. And, um, exciting. And, and then, uh, I just been back from Iraq for, I'm probably at this point, like maybe six, seven months and came down on TDY orders to go back to Iraq and Afghanistan in the middle of this job as part of a special task force. And, uh, and it was like, you know, kind of a huge kick in the balls, man. And, uh, <laughs> and after, in the meantime, I have this silent partner that's up in Alaska and he's like, Hey, if there was ever a time that you wanted to, get out this would be it and there were some big contracts that were popping up to go service uh energy companies on the oil fields up in dead horse and prudhoe bay and that type of thing so yeah it was probably one of the most difficult decisions i'd ever made i reached out to all my senior mentors and i'm like hey you know i've got this opportunity um my family you know i'd been gone Four out of six years on my oldest daughter at that time, three out of four on my youngest daughter had gotten this cool your Hills assignment and immediately came back up on orders. And so it was like a decision for me was more about, um, you know, family. It was all about family and uh, being a dad and being a husband, you know, when my wife and I got married. You know, we did sickness and health and all that, but we didn't put in there like multiple back to back deployments and um, having her, you know, run FRGs and uh, the household and that type of thing. So anyway, it was a super hard decision. And I thought, you know, somebody's going to tell me, no, like I can't go. And I was reaching out to like geo level guys that I'd worked for in the past and and full birds and so on. And I'm like, you know, somebody's going to say, oh. Uh, but you're just too valuable for army aviation. You need to stay in. And no one did. They all said, if you're doing this for your family, um, you need to, you need to do it. Right. And everybody was feeling, you know, the the stress and the strain of, you know, the war on terror and being gone all the time. And like in between deployments being like NTC, GRTC, like we were talking about before we started and, and gunneries and so on. So, yeah, I made the decision to, to, uh, jump into this business up in Alaska. Um, and that's when I really started to pour a lot into cryptic too. I mean, the original concepts, they were, you know, formed, there was some work that had been done before my separation. Um, but then I really started to play into it. And when I first got that phone call from Cabela's, um, I think I talked to the guy for like at least a minute or two before it clicked, like, Oh, this dude's talking about cryptic, right? You know, when you have a phone call and you have no idea who it is or what they're saying. You hear, I mean, I heard Cabela's and blah blah blah, and he starts to rant on, and I'm like, holy shit, this guy's talking about cryptic, and um, that's when the hobby really kicked into full gear. And so, I stayed in in the hobby phase for quite a while. It was the next big event was the U.S. Army Camo Improvement Effort.
0: Right, I was reading a little bit about that. That was, that was a pretty interesting uh, article from MDF magazine that, that covered your Q and A on that one. Yeah.
1: I remember that. Cause you guys were like top, I remember they released like the top four and you guys were in it. Yeah. I was like, fuck yes. I was like, I could get free CrypTech from now. Like that would be dope.
2: Right. Well, we were the only guys that were involved in that race that were veteran owned had any combat experience but we are also by far the smallest group. And um, a lot of companies were huge. I mean, like billion dollar companies. And I know in one case, they had like a 30 man team that was working on that. But, um, you know, initially when that solicitation came out, it was for a new family of camouflage to cover pretty much the globe. You had a jungle, you know, deep green a woodland pattern. You had an arid desert pattern and then you had a transitional pattern for everything in between. But, uh, it went from like 60 companies down to 20 cause the other 40 didn't have all their ducks in a row and their shit straight. And then when we were down selected after the phase one testing, it was like a giant, giant coup on our part. And it was, you know, I was in Alaska Claycorn was still active duty. Um, and we were basically Cryptic was wherever our flip phones were at the time, our cell phones and our and our laptops. Yeah. And yeah, it was a, it was a great big deal and it gave us a ton of confidence um to go full full bore into cryptic and and like really make a run at it. Um we should have won. We did win, it just never was announced and it never was awarded. Right. Uh, but we still got a lot of great things out of it a whole bunch of great stuff and uh, a lot of organic lift. And we got, you know, um, we got placement in a lot of, uh, of uh, U.S. You know, tier one spec ops units, both Navy Special Warfare and Army Special Warfare and also coalition out of that. So it was a big win, even though we weren't officially announced and didn't get the big contract. It was still a monumental event in the life of cryptic. That's for sure.
1: I always like to hear those, those stories about like where, where that moment was for different entrepreneurs, where they feel like they could actually make it full-time. Because I know for myself with, with my small knife business and Luke, like we're always wondering like, where's that, where's that moment where you're like, okay, this is, this is something that can be my career and like put food on the table for my family.
2: Yeah. I tell a lot of people, You know, try to operate in that quote unquote hobby phase up to the point to where you're not completely dependent upon whatever it is you're trying to grow as a business. At some point, though, you have to, you know, cut the umbilical and actually go for it. And what really encouraged us was that during the phase two testing of the U.S. Army camo improvement effort, we were getting constant feedback from. Anyone and everyone at different levels, guys in the Pentagon to guys that were doing the testing in the field at the various military installations and fobs to, you know, echelons above reality. And uh, it was always, you know, cryptics got this cryptics, it, cryptics got it. And then, you know, there were some guys that um, started to basically say, hey, you better prepare and brace for this, because if you guys, you know, do get announced, um, it's going to be a rocket ship. And so we were so confident that we were going to be announced and we were so confident that it was going to be awarded that we just said, let's go for this. And, um, operating out of Alaska is extremely difficult to build a company that's not, you know, hyper-focused within Alaska. If you know, doing stuff globally, and also primarily in the lower 48, so we, we, I knew logistically we had to move to the lower 48 to stay in the fight and relevant. And so we ended up moving back to Boise, Idaho, where my wife and I are originally from. And Claycorn came in and visited. And that's where we're at now. That's where our headquarters is. But um, yeah, those decisions were made with a high level of confidence. And uh, they were very deductive. Um, they weren't just like, hey, let's go you know, start a camo company. It was just, right. you know, one, one little success after the other. And the whole time we're not getting, you know, uber wealthy at all. You know, it's just enough um, positive energy and information to just keep us, you know, hyper focused and willing to, to take the next steps. So yeah, that's what was encouraging for, for us. To use.
1: I think that level of wealthy, like kind of depends on your perspective though. Cause like if you're, in a place where you can, you can do what you want. You don't have anybody to answer to, you can go out, you know, you're going on hunts and getting to spend time with your family. Like to me, that's as wealthy as I ever need to be, you know?
2: True statement. I mean, that was the original idea was a lifestyle by design where you got to do those things, but it does come with a lot of heavy lifting. I mean, as you get more organized and you realize, you know, we need more depth we need more bench strength we need systems you need to do this you need to do that i mean it's the stuff that is not sexy and it's not fun you know building out your operations your logistical tells you know having redundant vendors i mean there's a lot of stuff that happens when we were just purely hobby phase i think cryptic was actually a lot more fun cuz we didn't know what <laughs> we didn't know you know exactly <laughs> every day was a new day just out yeah, stumbling exactly. through this shit <laughs> 100%. I used to say all the time, like, I don't know where we're going. I just know we're going in the right direction. And then it started to materialize more and more. We started to figure out, you know, where we wanted to go. But the idea about lifestyle by design, that was the original concept when we were daydreaming about being in the outdoor industry when we we're in third world shithole, Tal Afar, Iraq, was how cool would this be, you know, if we could be in that outdoor industry and we could go hunting, we could do this and still maintain at that time, you know, the lifestyle that, uh, we were accustomed to, you know? Um, and so, yeah, we've been extremely blessed, but to your point, Derek, I mean, there's lots of different ways to measure wealth. And one of those ways for me for sure has been that my, I've been there for my girls. I've been there for all their major events. Um, and you know, I'm not sure if I would have been able to do a you know, a lot of those things had I stayed in, um, you know, those are, those are some of the sacrifices, um, that guys make when they, uh, they ride the lightning all the way to hit retirement. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I jumped out at around the 11 year mark, had the golden handcuffs on, so to speak. Um, but I don't regret it at all and it took me a couple years probably to not be the bitterest son of a bitch on the planet to actually start to realize that you know it's not easy when that's all you know and that's what you're born to do and to transition out of that um you know it's not a seamless transition this is for some guys i mean for me though it wasn't it was very difficult because i absolutely loved everything about it and uh I love the Apache attack helicopter, you know, more than anything, I, that weapons platform has, you know, super, super big spot in my heart, um, in that community. And, um, yeah, it was difficult to leave. Yeah. But, uh, in hindsight now it was probably the best decision I've ever made.
0: Absolutely. I know Derek's a few years removed, but I just started my internship program. So I'm on my six month transition window. It's a hard train to jump off of. I'm not going to lie. Last week was a uh, little, little highs and lows. Everything came out of the woodwork in terms of just you reminisce about everything. And you, you remember the good times. You kind of forget all the, the shitty summer JRTC rotations and living in third world countries. And <laughs> you kind of forget those for a little bit. And you're like, well, I'm going to miss the people I'm going to miss. I mean, it is a fun job. There's never, a, you know, never a bad day. There's never a boring day, but it, it's, interesting when you have to reevaluate okay what do I want to do next who do I want to become next what do I want to if I could work so hard in a whatever training exercise or a deployment how can I apply that same energy towards something that like you started a company that you know influenced how many hunters and how many different states and building something that gives people jobs and tangible benefits to society outside of just service, you know? Yeah. The adventure aspect of it is,
2: you know, there's some scratches that are hard to itch or itches that are hard to scratch however you want to word it. But, um, you know, we fill a lot of, I've personally fill a lot of those gaps with my, you know, call it an expeditionary type hunting, uh, problem that I've got. But yeah. Um, there's also major freaking differences between leadership in the military and then leadership in business. Right. Um, and we, ha- I'd like to think we have a great culture here at cryptic, but you know, cohesion unity of effort. There's a lot of things that you just kind of take for granted. You know, when you're active duty and especially when you're in combat, everybody's pulling on the rope in the same direction. It's super hyper focused, clear. And then when you get into business, especially when you start to grow and you're onboarding new personalities and you're trying to do your best to hire to the culture, um, it's challenging, you know, it can be. And I've made a few mistakes and we've had to let some people go. But the the cultural aspect was so much easier when, you know, you were active duty and everybody was there for the to fight and win our nation's battles, right? Yep. So yeah, the that's
0: common bad. on me and Everyone, everyone hates where they're at. So there's only yeah. one way to get through it.
2: Yeah, one hundred percent. Everybody, everybody's uh, definitely um, in step with regards to you know bringing everyone home and and you know that type of thing. Those bonds, I'll tell you. To sum it up, out of everything that I've been able to do, by far the most greatest honor was to lead U.S. soldiers in combat. There's nothing greater, right? And even more so to bring everybody home and in the process just be in some badass gnarly fights and kick mm-hmm. the living dog shit out of the enemy. So yeah, I mean it's monumental really to be even to say you've done that. And yeah. It's not it's not easy to get out and not easy to get away from that.
1: And I think that's something that like once you've gone through that, you you take that with you throughout the entire rest of your life. Like you can always look back on those times and you're like, fuck it. I made it through some of the worst situations and still prospered. I can, I can get through this. And I think that's huge for a person.
2: Yeah. I've reminded, um, a lot of my folks, you know, they'll get in a tizzy or start to spin out and I'm like, Hey, no one's shooting at you. And, um, I think that, you know, they will stop and they'll sit back and like, think about that. Like, Holy shit, you're right. You know, sometimes you might feel like you are in business, but it's, it's not literal. Right. And then when I start to spin out, and usually it's only around my wife and she'll be like, Hey, no one's shooting at you and she'll just put me back in my own place. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, you know. She's been through enough of the, the <laughs> post deployment sessions. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. hundred percent. So, but good for you on the transition, John. I mean, hopefully it uh, goes well. They didn't have those fancy programs when I got out. Well,
0: I'm, I'm very fortunate to also have a, a friend who owns a law firm in Pittsburgh who was willing to take me on. So right now the plan is law school, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. There's always uh, New opportunities coming up. So
2: now is that under the program where uh you're getting paid stills if you're active duty yeah so
0: i'm still technically on active duty not getting any paycheck from the law firm uh and then i'll final out last day will be one august so hopefully segue right into school after that wow well why didn't you just become a jag officer while you're
2: active and get that
0: so they did the the flat program, right, um, which they'll pay for for law school, the what stopped me and really what turned me off to it was the six year adso after. Oh yeah, and I wasn't ready to suck down a nine year commitment. Yeah, it's a good program. It makes sense for a lot of people. Um, I I kind of made my peace with the uh, adso's after getting screwed out of one back in 2019, and I said if I'm gonna stay in the army, it's gonna be on my own terms. It's not because there's yeah. an adso chaining me to a desk somewhere.
2: Yeah. I was just right at that point where I didn't have any more ADSOs right when I had that opportunity that presented itself and um it made it a little bit easier. Probably also Good. made it easier that I was not in an active uh aviation unit at the time too. I was right. surrounded by a bunch of super smart big brain guys that um I mean, you know a little bit easier to transition out of uh, the combined arms doctrine Directorate than in, out of the one hundred first airborne division or thirty. 30- yeah, or as,
0: this, as the brigade I am currently in is spinning up for deployment in April, it it makes it a little challenging when the whole train is going towards deployment and uh, you are trying to jump off it at a, at a right time and not crash and burn on the on the way out. So yeah, I think I've uh, successfully landed on my feet at least for this this portion of the transition. Um, but it'll kind of also be sad. You know, I get to unfortunately sit back and watch as the team deploys and that brings with it its own, you know, ball of emotions, but
2: 100% hunting
0: for that. Yeah.
2: I had to do a change of command like the last two weeks, um, in Iraq and I was just like dumbfounded. I was like so distraught and so pissed off that. I just couldn't believe it. I wasn't going to, you know, bring everybody home, and it was just to check a block to give the new guy that was onboarding like combat time. Yeah, yeah. Those, you know, seeing your guys go, you know, get on the plane, or you know, even like in my case, coming home with them on the plane. It's you know, it's tough when you get pulled out, or you make the decision. In your case, you know, you're going to move on to something else.
0: Yeah. Well, so. When I deployed to Afghanistan in 18, there was no uh, stop loss anymore. They prioritized schooling, especially professional uh, schools, over deployments at that time. So, me and two other first lieutenants redeployed early uh, from Afghanistan. That was, I mean, that was tough too, coming home before everybody else, knowing that they had another couple months of shit to deal with and you get to come home. Yeah. Uh, But they definitely don't make welcome parties and welcome home ceremonies for three people redeploying early. (laughs) <laughs> no, i know i know
1: You get I came your, home get your fucking hiv test and your malaria meds and they tell you Dang. to get on
0: drive on down to georgia and hit triple c yep
2: when i first went into afghanistan right after 9-11 i was with the advon and the 101st and there was 10 of us and um i was the very first apache pilot in afghanistan i can yeah. say that without a shadow of a doubt and uh, the Marines had just seized Kandahar, the second Mew, mm-hmm. and actually Mad Dog Mattis was there and in charge. You know, um, and I it was super cool. I got to go out and fly uh, Cobras. The Marines um, had their attack aircraft there. They had their whole aviation section there, and I was getting fam rides and so on and so forth. But when the smoke cleared on that, I also got to come back earlier, and it was about this. I don't know if it was the exact same time, guys, but it was a group of us. And we had to go through Germany, um, and transition, we flew a C five from Kandahar to Germany and then went to Ilsheim and I had to go buy a tough box and put everyone's M fours, break them, like crack them in half and put them <laughs> in there. And then we get on this plane <laughs> to fly out of Germany back to, uh, Fort Campbell to Nashville. And, um, we uh, we end up landing, and there's no effing tough box, dude. The fucking tough box. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so they had lost this. I mean, think about this. You know how important this is, right? I I got yeah. a
1: shit right up my back.
2: <laughs> yeah. And so, and there wasn't any welcome ceremony or any of that, like you're talking about. I mean, it was just like, but I, and my wife, it was super cool, and my little girls were there and stuff, but I, I couldn't think about anything. I was like the commanding OIC and that little tiny hodgepodge coming home. And I had just lost 10 M4s. Yeah. And uh, I think we might have had some M9s in there too in the bottom of the tough box. They ended up finding it. Um, it had the label they had put on it had come off. And the rear D commander actually had it located like by the next morning, which I then I was able to actually enjoy getting home. But yeah. I was like, dude, that was something else coming home to no one. And then just having that burden. Yeah. So, yeah. So
0: I, I guess, um, what was your, you know, how did hunting play into, um, your, your post deployment kind of decompression, uh, timeline? Did you prioritize it? Did you prioritize time with family? I tried to do both as much as
2: possible, you know, yeah. to include my, to include my family and in that passion. And it's it's a huge part of our family culture and it played huge into who I was as an officer and, and just a soldier in general growing up. I mean, that was probably one of the most um, treasured aspects of anything that I did with my family. So it really was also what drove the development of Cryptek, you know, this overarching passion for the outdoors, but in terms of like compression, um, or decompression rather, you know, um, that was both hunting and fishing was a major, major part of that. I won't call it healing, but I'll call it, you know, transition aspect. And, you know, it's one thing to go sling a bunch of hellfires and turn a bunch of Al-Qaeda into dirt. Um, but it's still another thing to miss, you know, Numerous back-to-back opening days of hunting season, especially when you know that's what the center of gravity is for your my extended family and their activity,
0: yep. right?
2: Um, and you know that love and passion for for um, for hunting was it played well into who I was as an officer too. I mean, I I like to think I was a pretty damn good quote unquote hunter on the battlefield, and a lot of those skill sets had been trained. You know, from the time I was able to even walk and talk in hunting camp with my grandfather and my uncles and my dad and so on. So it kind of goes both ways. I think that some of the best guys that I've served with came from those types of backgrounds too. Right. Farm kids, ranch kids, that type of thing. But I have and do have a lot of friends that maybe maybe driving more into what you're asking about. I mean, I've got some buddies that have really, you know, hunting's been a bridge gap for them to get introduced back into the outdoors mm-hmm. and you know the last thing that they ever wanted to do is kill anything or see anything killed again um and uh had some pretty big moments actually with a few folks and it's um you know it's 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 just a i think going through the process if you came from that culture if you have interest in it you know there's a giant um surge right now in self-reliance and self-sustainment and Guys wanting to fill their own, you know, refrigerators or their own freezers. Um, for sure. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of really good positive things, but um, yeah, for me, I mean, I, it wasn't like I was breaking out in sweats at night, couldn't sleep, you know, that type of stuff. It was more just about spending time in the fashion that I really enjoyed it. What I wanted to spend my time on this this quality of life and this lifestyle by design. And then have it integrated with my wife and my, and my two girls. It was like a giant win-win and John to, you know, kind of caveat when I said I found a way to do it both with the family and, and myself that one moment that I realized I'd done the right thing by getting out. I was actually on the Golcana river in Alaska. Both of my girls were in the river with hip waders on salmon fishing. And I just had this surreal moment, like, I did the right thing,
0: right? Right. Yeah, that's the I. uh, So New York has a a big salmon run and a pretty, pretty good uh, fly fishing community up there. So that was always my outlet up there. And um, yeah, there's there's trips that we deliberately took before the deployment um, that were friend filled. Same thing, full weekends, and uh, those those got me through to deployment, and then. steelhead fishing afterwards sometimes you just need to be alone after being around so many people for so long (laughs) i just need to go fishing and be alone for a little bit yeah
2: i understand true statement for sure
1: so but you had said you were kind of kicking around a couple different ideas uh for like businesses what made you go the apparel route like we're just not happy with what was already out there and you're just like i could probably do this shit better or or did you kind of fall bass backwards into it like I did with knife making?
2: Well, that inspiration of seeing the improvements was, you know, the catalyst for writing that business model. But, um, yeah, I think that it was about doors that started to open. And then once you those doors started to open and we started to step through them, then you're kind of like on that track. You're on that path. And it could have been – bows could have been you know a lot of different things for me personally but it was more about the baptism into the industry that i wanted to be a part of you know and i had some associates and friends that didn't go in the military that were blowing up in the outdoor industry that i went to college with And, and when i saw their products and i saw their pictures and i you know see their articles i was like shit if those those assholes could do it. I can do it. You know? <laughs> and so yeah. that, I mean, it ultimately it was just about being in the outdoor industry and some doors closed, man. I, I reached out to one outfitting business here in central Idaho in the Frank church wilderness and no return. And I tried to, I tried to work a deal with the guy that was an you know owner and um, of course, you know, uh, captain on um captain's pay probably isn't as attractive to somebody that's trying to move a multi-million dollar business so the door closed but if he had said yeah i'll work it out and i'll put you on terms i mean i might not be sitting here talking to you guys right now right we would be living up there that was so real that my wife actually flew in in the middle of the winter on a plane with skis and landed in there to look the operation over and as they were landing the just came to an absolute sudden stop because the snow was so deep like Mm -hmm. almost like dynamic rollover on the plane and they end up spending half the day you know packing down the runway to get back out um she was you know she was pretty excited about some of these ideas she knew how passionate i was about hunting and about the outdoor industry and i think that uh the idea for her, if, you know, these things started to come to fruition, she would have done anything. She would have lived in the middle of nowhere with supplies coming in, you know, once a month or whatever. Um, but yeah, it was Derek to answer your question. It was about doors that were opening.
1: Just taking the opportunities as they came. That's, I mean, that's a yeah. pretty good. Uh, a pretty good way to approach it. I mean, if, if I know there's some people that get stubborn and, uh, like they're like this is this is what I want to do, but if you're, I mean, not not able to pivot, then you might not have much success.
2: Well, you you know, I know there's a lot of products that are in the market right now that were are being used in a fashion that they were never intended for, and guys had really good ideas when they came up with those products, and then they thought it was for X, but then it ends up being for you know Y, and um, that's kind of how it was with us. It wasn't like, I am hell bent definitive. I want to have an apparel company. I want, I can, you know, do this so much better. Um, even though we were super serious about our gear, you know, and, and very in tune with what we really liked and what worked and what didn't work and ways to make improvements. Um, it was more about, you know, the application of that gear. And that's what the motivation was. Um, and we had the luxury of, you know, we developed camo specifically for the Department of Defense, spiraled it into the civilian hunting market. And we still get to do programs and talk with guys and maintain relationships back on the military side. So right. it's, 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 got a, it's definitely got some benefits and advantages there also.
0: So would you, would you say the, the Department of Defense is your main target now with hunting being the spinoff or is, do you try and balance the two?
2: No, I think that it's more on the hunting, um, yeah. the, the DOD stuff, you know, and also foreign military sales. um, especially coming into COVID-19, there was a lot of tenders and a lot of, you know, projects that we were heavily invested in, but the wheels just came flying off the wagon. You know, right. there was a lot of freeze on buying and everybody was buying, you know, plastic masks or plastic gloves and rubber gloves and and k95 masks. i mean there's just a major pivot in spending we still have those programs they still exist and we still have you know some really cool shit that um hasn't been disclosed and hopefully all comes to fruition but when you're doing government contracting you're at the whim of the finance aspect of it and you can be way down the road on something and it just be defunded or yeah somebody comes in and, and changes, you know, direction. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's, you gotta have a real significant financial spine to weather through a lot of those, um, types of procurement processes that, you know, may or may not happen and may not go together. It
1: would have to be, damn near maddening with the ebbs and flows of that shit. Just like you get one guy that relinquishes a position, the new guy comes in, and he's like, yeah, I don't like this. And, and now you're out all this research development and it yeah. kind of feels all for naught.
2: There's also a lot of politics depending on the magnitude of what you're going after. And I, I had taken that for granted probably way more than I know for sure way more than I should have, but way more than anybody else that was involved in any of it, because you come from this culture where, you know, your word is your word, your reputation is your most prized commodity. And then you get into these, you know, military related opportunities and tenders. And depending on the magnitude of the outcome, it becomes extremely political. And now you're going up against companies that have giant resources. Um, they have lobbyist groups that are influencing congressmen and senators in DC. And they're going to basically get congressional activity that's either going to protect what they already have in place or what they're trying to obtain. And it's not always what's best. And it's not always, you know, what should be in play or best value. It's who had a better. Voice in Congress or the Senate, and so yeah. you know that was I think disruptive for me personally. Like I mean, it, it's a it's a culture shock from you know coming from from the military and especially you know combat deployments and to you know basically decisions being made because some lobbyist group was better than. Not having one at all.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's maddening just to hear from the sidelines, and I'm not, yeah. I'm not even in the fight. Hundred <laughs> percent. But we've also probably all been on the receiving end too of those contracts going south and getting the, the shit under the gear, you know, in training or downrange. Yeah, for sure.
1: There's been multiple times yeah. I've grabbed a piece of gear and been like, "Who in the fuck approved this thing?"
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. One-time use.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, it's 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 a real deal. And actually had um, contracting officers that separated after we went through our, you know, some of our big stuff and came back as consultants. And, you know, then you really get the truth like, oh, yeah, you guys, you guys did win. But one, two, three, four, five. And it's not the first time we've seen that. We saw the same thing with the boot, you know, deal or the belt deal or whatever it was. Right. um, Yeah. So it's not always the best is the one that's going to be selected. So to answer your question, though, we still do programs. It's primarily, you know, um, FMS, foreign military, uh, coalition spec ops, and then also, you know, a lot of impact card stuff with uh, Navy Special Warfare, Army Special Warfare. And some of the coalition stuff is is uh, probably more significant
0: than
1: than others. So with the – uh, oh, go ahead, John. Go there. ahead,
0: man. I was just going to add that it, it was pretty cool that you are – um, starting to see video games and Hollywood pick up your your products too and utilize them. I thought that was just a cool little cherry on top of the sundae. Yeah,
2: it's all happened. That truly has happened by accident and just right. the authenticity of the brand and who's using it and stuff. And so um, there's no monetization. It's not like Activision is writing us a check to put Cryptic in their game. Right. But in and on the flip side is we're not writing them a check either. Yeah. And uh, there is that those programs do exist where if you're a major brand, you want placement, then, you know, you go and basically pay a fee or, or uh, pay a big amount of money. But, um, you know, at at the end of the day on that, there's a lot of people that know about cryptic with regards to those video games. Um, In many cases, most of them, a lot of them actually have never, ever served in the military. And more so than not, none of them have ever hunted. Right. So we'll find, you know, times like in social media where we have to educate, like, why would you shoot a bear? Um, You know, you have to go in, your response has to be, well, because dipshit, it's fun. You have to go in and basically go into a response on, you know, predator management, you know, the impact on elk, deer, ungulates, you know, those types of things. So, so it has its advantages and disadvantages. But when I first got approached by that, I was like, I don't even like video games. Video <laughs> games are stupid. Right. And I was actually loading out to go on a hunt with my daughter in yeah. Alaska, a caribou hunt. And uh, we had a time it was set for it, but the Alaska fishing game made this announcement. They were only going to open this hunt for 24 hours because the herd, the 40 mile herd was so close to the, to the highway. And mm-hmm. so I was loading up. I'm on a, I've got my phone on speakerphone. and I'm talking to the head of, um, uh, licensing from Activision. It was a group call and I'm packing out to go on this hunt. And, um, and we get through the call and I probably heard like, of it. If I heard five, I I mean, really, I wasn't paying attention. So anyway, uh, the guy gets off the phone call and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. You know, I think video games are stupid. And one of my associates that was on the call is like, you're a fucking idiot if you don't do this. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, I, I'll, I'll think about it and I'll, and I'll contact you in a couple of days. And so we go on the, have this awesome adventure and I get back and then they're like, do you realize there's 30 million people at any one time playing this game globally? And I was like, wow, okay. So lots of brand exposure. And you know, to sum up the Cryptic brand, we are a global brand. And a lot of that was driven out of Call of Duty Black Ops, Call of Duty Advanced Warfare, you know, Tom Clancy Ghost Recon. There's there's a bunch of others too, but but that um, awareness, especially in Russia and Europe and, and Asia, I personally believe was driven by placement and them calling out cryptic, whatever cryptic typhon, which is our black pattern or cryptic highlander which is our transitional pattern so they called out our name and the name of the camo Mm -hmm. and it's provided a a lot of um global awareness out of that
0: that's crazy talk about lifestyle by design though getting ready for a hunt and here i had a licensing call (laughs) yeah i'm sure no one else there was uh getting ready to go hunting
2: no that was an epic hunt in fact I got. I'll show you this. I'll show you this exact. This exact hunt. I'm talking about the. The. Uh, this is the hunt that. Um, that's the Activision Call of Duty Black Ops hunt right there. So that's what oh I was doing. Oh my god. That was what I was yeah. doing. With my. Yeah. Uh, while I was thinking about contemplating on whether that was a good idea or not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that must have been a sign. <laughs> yeah, it was.
1: Uh, so So, with the, uh, success that you guys have been having, um, where do you, what are some like future milestones that you'd like Cryptech to hit?
2: So we've been hyper-focused on really call it Western hunting or expeditionary hunting. Um, and the biggest market is by far in the U S is whitetail. And so we have a program that's in place and we're going to be launching, um, soft launching this year, a major tail program. Um, we've got some other programs that are coming down the line 2023 and, and early 2024, but, um, there's a lot of guys that will use Cryptic now in their whitetail hunts, but we've never marketed to that end user. Um, and we've never really, um, turned the volume up. And so we've got, you know, new pieces that are very specific to the white tail market with acoustic signature being a primary consideration. Um, meaning, you know, if you're bow hunting, it's quiet gear. We still have the layering up, layering down, that type of thing. And, um, and so that's a major milestone that's coming down the pipeline right now, very quick. In fact, we're... Um, getting ready to start to drop, you know, content around that. And, um, at the end of the day, that market is a thousand times bigger than the Western hunting market. Um, you know, I got introduced into whitetail hunting when I was stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. I went through flight school with a buddy, he's still one of my best friends, if not my best friend in the world who grew up in New Hampshire he introduced me into it and it was com- completely foreign, like, you know, how to, you know, set your stand up, be, um, be uh, cognizant of, you know, the wind conditions, send control, you know, all these types of things. And, uh, after I shot my first white tail buck at Fort Campbell, which by the way is pretty significant, it was scored 169 inches.
1: Damn.
2: And, uh, and, um, I, you know, I don't know how many whitetail that I killed between Fort Campbell, Fort Leavenworth, uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama, all these Southern States, in some cases like Alabama, you could kill a deer a day. But I, I personally enjoyed it a lot. Um, but we just haven't made it a primary, you know, a primary, um, cryptic branded, uh, push. And so, uh, that's going to be the new big for 2022 coming down the pipe here. This summer will be available. So that's kind of the five meter target. There's, you know, 10 meter targets. I mean, I could talk back in the tactical, we've got, um, programs we're trying to get actually put into CIF and, uh, in U S army spec ops, you know, um, completely on un- hunting related. Um, so those are major focuses as, as well. And then some of the other stuff I'll be able to talk more about as it comes to fruition. But we've got some really super solid partnerships um, into, that are going to provide amazing synergistic effects uh, for other programs that are slated out. So, to answer your question, it's to continue to push and can continue to grow um, and expand uh, expand what we've been, we know we've become very good at into other areas that we think that, uh, we can make a difference in.
1: Son of a bitch, Butch. I thought I had everything I needed, but it looks like I got to open my wallet again.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's, that's part of the, the problem with our gear is We make it so well then, you know, um, it's not like you have to replace it every, every year. Uh, so some of these newer, um, collections are going to open up some guys that already believe in our stuff like you do Derek. And then, yeah, we'll hopefully get some more business with uh, guys that are already riding for the brand.
1: Oh, I'm a, I'm a firm believer. I bought my Aegis bibs 12 years ago and they are perfect still today. And like when uh, I was going out to Colorado for my first Western hunt this year, I was going with two buddies and they're like, well, what do we need? And I, I just, I sent them a cryptic list I was like, I put everything in a cart and then sent it to him. I was like, buy this shit and you'll be fine because there's nothing worse than fucking going out hunting with somebody or going out and doing anything in the, in the outdoors. And they're like, all right, well I got my Walmart tent and my blue jeans and my flannel. And there's been a shit ton of animals killed in blue jeans and flannel. But Like when the weather gets bad, you want some, some gear that's actually going to back you up. And I I love your guys' stuff. I can't say enough about it. And it's, it's phenomenal gear.
2: Well, thanks. It's about prolonging and increasing your opportunities because if a guy saves up to go on a Western hunt for, you know, five years and he's got it well planned out and ends up getting there and the weather is just absolute shit. I mean, you don't get to, you know, go back and say, Hey, the weather was shit. Uh, can I get a redo on it? Um, so you've got to, you know, ensure you can extend, uh, your time on the mountain, so to speak, and give yourself the best opportunity that, uh, you can generate, um, with the gear that you have. And, and there is a ton of stuff that's been shot in blue jeans and a flannel shirt up, you know, um, I know cause I, I was there but I also, also know I've almost, you know, died on the side of a mountain when I was wearing all cotton and gotten rained on and have the temperature drop to 28 degrees. Um, so there's something to be said about having good quality gear. That's going to ensure your success, um, and comfort. Exactly. That's the, that's exactly. the end state. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I've got a lot of pictures from me and being a kid, you know, running around and wearing whatever was available. <laughs> <laughs> and um, also, I've also had some incredibly miserable experiences where I thought I was going to die too. So, oh yeah, you
1: know, I knew once I got out Maybe. of school, I made a promise myself. I was like, "I'll be cold, and I can be wet, but I will never be fucking cold and wet ever again." So I just bought—I <laughs> bought whatever would make that true. <laughs>
2: You know what's crazy is when I was a, I remember when I was a little kid, there was two things that I really wanted. I'm like, someday, someday I'm gonna be able to, I'm gonna have a Weatherby rifle someday, and then the other thing I would say is, and someday I'm gonna actually get some good hunting gear from Cabela's. So maybe there was an underlying, you know, passion in the apparel side when those doors started to open, why I wanted to say, yeah, hell yeah, let's go through them, let's oh, yeah. jump through them. But you don't appreciate those experiences until you, uh, until you are absolutely frozen solid or miserable cold, or, you know, doing an emergency fire on the side of a mountain, burning your shoelaces off because your feet are so cold, you know, those are good times. I don't,
1: I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm sure you're probably the same way as me, but like, yeah, I remember the good times but I remember the shitty times way more and then look back on them finally like, yeah, that sucked, but it was really fucking fun.
2: <laughs> it's funny how we categorize those memories like that, you know? Um I've actually been on some hunts where I didn't kill anything and I look back on those hunts and go, "Man, that was the best hunt that uh I've ever been on." And and just crazy adventures that you otherwise, you know, wouldn't put yourself in those situations. And then, um, and then you get through them and you're like, holy shit, you know, that was, that wasn't very smart or, you know, why did we do that? <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm the same way. The coldest that I've ever been on a hunt and, and I hunted a lot in Alaska too. We were up there for, I was up there for I think close to seven years and I'm talking, it's butt ass cold dude. Like, 30 below 40 below that type of thing. But the coldest, the coldest that I have ever been was actually, um, whitetail hunting in Kansas and I got wet and then the wind started, you know, just howling. And, uh, and then there was a, a buck and a bunch of does and I ended up, you know, staying on the stand way longer than I should have and you know basically became hypothermic because of it that's absolutely the coldest i've ever been in my life Mm. stupid crappy gear get soaking wet and then just you know the wind just cut you in half um yeah i i still to this day think that my hands get cold quick because of that one that one night sitting in that stand
1: oh you're you're not wrong
2: (laughs) yeah so how much do you guys get to hunt? I mean, do you get to hunt as often as you'd like, Derek?
1: I never get to hunt as often as I like. I still, um, so I, I do uh, contracting as my day job uh, as a, a flight medic. And um, then I have my small knife business on the side. So, if, and hunting is the thing that kind of falls by the wayside because I've got you know my real job, my side job, and then I'm trying not to be a terrible father too, so spending time with my daughter and, and my fiance, so it's it's never as much as I want, but anytime I can get out there, um, it it even for a little bit, just sitting in my backyard, um, it's nice. And I got to do my first Western hunt this year in Colorado. Um, never saw a damn animal, but like wouldn't trade it for anything because it was my first trip out there, and uh, I'll definitely be back again. I think uh, we're going to try and hit Wyoming um, this uh, this next season, so we're excited.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's never enough hours in the day when you've got raising a family and also working, you know, another job nine to five. But what really, when it really comes together is when you get to a point where you can integrate your family into that. And um, and then, you know, things start to click a little bit easier.
1: Yeah. At least for me. I'm definitely excited for the times where she's a little bit older and I can take her out for sits. I mean, I don't really want, I don't want her to grow up faster than what she already is. Cause it seems like she was just like had that new baby smell on her. And now she's almost two. she She'll be two uh, Wednesday. And, um, and now, you know, once she gets a little older, I'll be excited for that, but I don't want the time to go any faster than what it already is.
2: Yeah. I've got some memories of taking my oldest daughter out the same one. I showed you the picture of and mm-hmm. um, on active duty and setting up a pop line. And just having her, like, she's playing games, Skittles, making all kinds of noise. I mean, you know, I knew there was no way in hell I was ever going to kill a deer. Um, But until she crashed and finally, you know, went to sleep, then my odds (laughs) went way up. But, (laughs) But when you start taking a playpen and, like, putting it in your blind... You know that you're might be a little bit premature on this integration idea that I'm talking about,
1: yeah, a little
2: too early, (laughs) yeah, 100%. Yeah,
1: so how was uh, how was your season this year?
2: Good, it was really good. I killed a super significant bull, uh, elk in September, um, really nice bull, like a 370 type, um, elk, and uh. Arizona. Uh, that was a super fun hunt. It was a last minute invite to Apache white mountain, which is a Apache Indian reservation. And they just have insane terrain and, and the density of elk are, is incredible. Um, it was a super last minute deal, but, um, yeah, it was quite the experience and the footage that we got out of that hunt was like bar none, like, unbelievable. Um, I did a hunt in Colorado for mule deer. It was a kind of a tougher hunt. Um, just cause the weather wasn't cooperating, but still killed a really good buck. I think everybody in camp, all my buddies on that trip, it's pretty habitual. We go out there every year, all shot good deer. And then I killed a giant buck, uh, in Sonora, Mexico. Um, I think January 5th or 6th or something in that range. So that was the last hunt that i that i did um i had a hunt scheduled here coming up on in the Katmai national preserve in alaska for coastal brown bear i've hunted this hunt before it's four years ago you can only as a non-resident you can only kill a brown bear in alaska once every four years and so we're coming back up on the on the new uh, next four years and i had um five spots reserved that were going to be for friends and, and stuff. And I ended up, um, bowing out of that because my youngest daughter, um, is the national high school rodeo queen. She's the Northwest champion for reigning cow horse. And I started to look at all of her events this summer and it was going to be butted up right next to one of those events. And so I said to my, my buddies, I'm like, guys, I'm I'm not going to go on this hunt, even though I'm the one that planned it four years ago. <laughs> and like, like changed up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So, so I told Clayhorn, I'm like, Hey dude, you got to go on this hunt and it's going to be a great time. And I killed a giant, um, brown bear up there, uh, 10 foot six. And I mean, it's just, you know, the paws are, are as big as a pie plate and, and, uh, and that's a tough hunt. I mean, it really is from an environmental condition. Spring on the peninsula in Alaska is not like spring anywhere else. It's mm-hmm. freaking nuts. Right. But, uh, it's back to the, you know, earlier discussion. I mean, um, I, that's why I got out of the military and, you know, going and killing another coastal brown bear here in a few months is not anywhere near as important for me to be at some of those events for my youngest daughter. Cause it'll be the, last year that I'll get to do those. So, but, um, if my daughters were going, it would have been a different story. I would have not given it up. You don't get that uh, time
1: back, unfortunately.
2: No. And I am the best, um, closet rodeo cowboy dad that you guys have ever met. (laughs) (laughs) I I can load up, I can load up horses and I can drive a horse trailer and, I am one hell of a cowboy. You guys have no idea. <laughs> True statement.
0: So, a few years um, before a hood will do that to you. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> you answered all my questions. I'm just stoked that you uh, accepted the invite. I'm not going to lie. All I did was put your name and at Cryptech and hope for the best, Butch. And I was. Completely, yeah. And I was completely surprised when you responded. Could not believe it.
2: So, you know, I get asked to go on a ton of podcasts and I went to your website and I looked at it and I was like, oh, these are a bunch of fucking former soldiers just like us. So I was like, I got to say yeah to that. You know what I mean? So, I mean, ultimately, um, I didn't go check out the actual podcast or anything. I just went to the website and I kind of read kind of the pedigree on the assortment of guys you have listed there and i was like dude this is just a bunch of former soldiers that love to hunt just yeah. like just like us and yeah. that's that's the end state you know um there's a lot of guys that are pr- maybe even listening to this that are like missing another hunting season or you know um down range. uh it's a big sacrifice in general but when you start to rip out you know something that defines the soul of somebody you know, it's hard to, it's hard to quantify that. And I've got gun tape of me turning a bunch of ISIS slash Al Qaeda, whatever they are today or tomorrow um, on the Syrian border and just stacking them up like cordwood. And then basically saying, yeah, motherfuckers, that's for another missed opening morning
0: <laughs> of mule deer season. <laughs> <laughs> that was a pretty good outlet for your stress though.
1: <laughs> I feel that because like after I started this new job, you know, I bought my, I had to move to Florida, which I'm not super stoked about, but i I found enough acreage where I could hunt. Cause that's always been my dream is like to own a piece of land that I can actually hunt no matter what the size is. And I've owned my property for almost three years now. And this is the first season that I ever have got to sit in a tree stand on my own land. So I definitely feel that yeah 100 percent.
2: yeah it's um it's hard to describe or to explain to somebody that you know doesn't have um i guess i won't call it a religion because i'm a big believer in, in god but you know people at different times in my life probably have thought hunting is butch's religion you know just super passionate about it and uh and when you're not able to do something that you're super passionate about for long periods of time, it'll, uh, it'll eat you up. You oh, know? Yeah, for sure. Yep. So, and I love the fact you got a piece of ground, Derek. That's yeah. the cool part about, you know, Eastern hunting is like it doesn't take a lot of ground to still have an opportunity. Um, and, you know, you can get into food plots and trail cameras. And I, I think a lot of Western hunters don't really, grasp the seasonality of Eastern you know whitetail hunting and scouting soybean fields and praying and naming bucks and all the all the cool stuff that comes along with it you
1: know yeah it, it's it's a whole other animal to, I mean and just like we don't understand walking for miles upon miles you know up up these gnarly mountains because like it, it, we just don't have that here and uh you know, most of the time you're sitting in a tree stand or you're sitting in a blind and you're just waiting for the the buck that you've been scouting the the entire season to come through and uh, so I mean neither's good neither's bad I mean well they're they're both good there's just just different and uh, I think it's just good to be uh, well rounded in all of it and um,
2: I agree 100 percent I'm never going to judge anybody that. Wants to, you know, shoot a recurve versus a compound, you know, if it's, if it's legal, you know, a crossbow, um, guys that are hardcore, long range shooters versus more traditional. I'm not going to take a shot under, you know, are over 300 yards. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all, we're all outdoorsmen. We're all sportsmen and we should all be unified and not divided by species or by techniques or weapons or anything else absolutely
1: so yeah
0: well guys thanks for your time appreciate you butch that thanks. was that was a good interview yeah, thanks for all the army transition questions too
2: <laughs> well hopefully something in there was meaningful
0: oh it, it definitely all clicks and uh, no no uh, transition stories a bad story everyone tackles it differently and handles it differently and that um, uh, just thank you for all the, all the wisdom on it. Yeah. Well, good luck to you.
2: Good luck to your legal aspirations. Thank you. Maybe once you're a, a big lawyer someday, you can, I can be a client. You can help me
0: out. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll call you down the road.
1: <laughs> all right, guys. Okay. Thank you enough thank you for much. coming on, Butch. Uh, do you guys, do you want to let everybody know where they can follow you and uh, find a uh,
2: yeah com. come to the website visit us there for social media it's cryptic outdoor group um, there's a lot of like pirated cryptics out there you know especially in russia and europe and stuff on social media so make sure you get the right one awesome awesome guys thanks for thanks again butch yeah take care
1: yeah, you too thanks again for listening to another episode of the hle podcast We appreciate the hell out of you guys, and we'll see you next time.